Hello again everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon show on the Podbreed Network. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times and I've read Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin. My name is Lizzie. I've also seen every single episode of Game of Thrones but I haven't read Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin. My name is Jay. I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones. I have read Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin, and I've also read all five books in the Song of Ice and Fire series. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. Our title music was written and provided by friend of the podcast Edward Thomas. You can find all of his available work in the description before we get going with the episode um you saw that i posted onto twitter this week that i've moved out of the the room or moved out of the flat that contained the room where 99 percent of um the longest nights episodes up to now have been recorded i'm currently in uh what should we say an interim interim accommodation as i move from a flat to a house but the house that we're moving to doesn't have internet yet so i'm having to use my parents place um which is probably why the reverb sounds a little bit different on my channel this time Uh, (laughs) but it's good i'm in a smaller room with more stuff in it so it's not as echoey as it normally is (laughs) um all right then let's get going for this episode This week we are going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 5 of House of the Dragon, entitled We Light the Way. It was written by Charmaine de Grate and directed by Claire Kilner. It was first broadcast on the 18th of September 2022 to an audience that was apparently 3% larger than last week's audience whatever last week's audience was. <laughs> Publish the raw data, HBO. I'm going to ask you every week for this. It makes the intros much easier. But never mind. I'm just glad that the show is doing fine, apparently. Um, Lizzie, we like the way. How are we with, with this new uh, new episode? It's another mostly solid episode, I think. Um, I'd say the first half of the episode was admittedly slower and maybe less tense than I would have liked, but everything with the wedding in the second half of the episode more than made up for it. And it gave us the best wedding in this universe since The Lion and the Rose. (laughs) Or, you know, the best wedding for those not named Joffrey in any case. (laughs) But yeah, really good on the whole. Yeah, Jay, what about you? Yeah, I was. I, I liked it a lot. I don't know. I think it. I don't know if there's anything specific in it that made me like it a bit less than the previous few weeks. But it it was still really enjoyable. Um, I liked it a lot. There was a lot of. I think book readers might will have been paying quite close attention to this one because there's a lot of changes. Not like you know huge changes, but a lot a lot of that kind of rearranging that we've seen before, um, and also a lot of filling in the blanks of fire and blood's kind of multiple perspective style like there's a lot of kind of hard facts being given which was quite interesting to see but uh hmm. yeah a good one in general yeah i kind of agree with you too um i'm a little bit i i didn't really read much of the reaction before i watched the episode i watched it a bit later 
than I normally do because I normally get up for work on a Monday morning and I normally have to have watched the episode before I start work. And so instead of staying up until two o'clock in the morning, what I'm doing instead these days is getting up at six instead and just watching the episode and then I start work at eight. And so it it was a nice routine I got myself into, but obviously because of everything that's been happening in the UK, um, I uh, Monday was a day off for me and so I woke up a bit later but even waking up a bit later I just kind of didn't really want to see much of the reaction about the episode and sat down and watched it and then when I came to social media I was like I was a bit surprised that everybody was saying it was like the best one so far I was a bit like yeah, it was good but like I'm kind of feel the totally the opposite I think this is my least favorite episode so far but it's a good sign that this is my least favourite episode so far because if this is about, I think for various reasons, this is about the weakest that the show can be. Okay. Of, and so that's that's encouraging because I think that the issues I had with this um, were, I don't know, I have a few hang-ups with it. Um, not major ones, but mm-hmm. it just means that, yeah, it finds itself at the bottom of the... The list. I I found it really interesting. I didn't know that um, Charmaine de, uh, de Gratte, the writer, I didn't know she had um, Twitter. So I went on her Twitter feed just this afternoon for the first time, and she referred to this episode as a mid-season finale. And that makes me think that, like behind the scenes, the season's kind of being arranged like like a concept album, like a traditional LP where it's like, we've done side yeah. A now, and now it's like, yeah. flip it over to side B. And like, Miguel Sapochnik is picking up again from episode six after he did the premiere. And it makes me think like, that episode six is going to be like, premiere number two, so to speak. Um, and I think that knowing that next week is coming, the big time jump, I think this episode hurries slightly to get a lot of things assembled in place. And I think it means that by the time big payoffs are supposed to happen, they kind of happen, but they don't hit in ways that I would have... I think if this episode had been split into two, I think some of the bigger events towards the end may have been a bit more satisfying. Um, Mm. But on the whole, I think it's just encouraging that if this is... I think, you know, my weakest episode so far, I'm still still a big fan of it. Um, I think yeah. I'm happy with yeah. where the show is going. Husband? What brings you to the Vale? Or have you at last come to consummate our marriage? The Vale sheep might be willing. Even if I'm not. Our sheep are prettier, after all. Or perhaps your brother has at last had his fill of your company. Cast you aside in favour of a little girl. What will you do now? Will you strike the child down? In the Vale, Lady Rhea Royce is hunting in the countryside when she happens across her husband, Daemon Targaryen, who has returned to Runestone after his exile from King's Landing. After a brief confrontation, Daemon causes Rhea's horse to fall over, dismounting Rhea and severely injuring her. After she insults him, he is seen picking up a large rock in order to finish the job. Uh, Quick scene at the beginning. Uh, Lizzie. 
Did you expect to turn up in the Vale <laughs> this week? <laughs> no, I did not. Um, I, yeah, I didn't expect another appearance of the Royce household either. Um, I don't really have much to say about this. I think more comes later on when, um, you know, you, you have an appearance at the wedding and it mm. seems like the Royce household is maybe not one to be fucked with. Let's say it could be one of those. It's like a dark house, a dark horse kind of house where you don't expect them to be one of the biggest names in the war, but they do maybe provide some sort of a turning point. You know, like um, say the Red Wedding, for example, you wouldn't have expected the Frey household yeah. to be the one that decides the War of the Five Kings could be a similar sort of thing on the horizon or even uh, literally in the case of house royce uh, battle of the bastards um of course young yeah, royce is still kicking about at the time of game of thrones um that's right yeah. yes a, a, a warning to all for who, who will mess with house royce there lizzie uh jay how, how are we about um damon popping up in the veil because ryan condor said something very interesting after this episode, uh, that made me think, hmm, okay, I see what you're doing there, just about how Rhea Royce's death is described in uh, in the books and what the show has decided to do. But yeah, how, how do you feel about it? Yeah, if I remember rightly, it's literally just a case of Rhea Royce fell off her horse, and wow, that's convenient that Damon now can remarry. <laughs> if I remember rightly, yeah. that's kind of what that's kind of all you get, and there's a obvi- there's an obvious air of suspicion. Um, hmm. So yeah, it was kind of a bit of a bit of a slap in the face for for it to be like, yep, that, that yep, he kills her. That's a thing. <laughs> Although it's odd that you don't actually see. Not that I want to see it particularly because I don't, <laughs> but like the discretion shot of you know picking up a rock and then gone. I don't know. I feel like we're. It's, it, I don't know. I hope no one came away from that with like ambiguous feelings mm. <laughs> of like did he or didn't he? Because um, yeah, he very I, obviously he... did. I think the fish cut kind of confirms it, right? Yeah, yeah. The cut to the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah true. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I guess very interesting to get that confirmed. Um, yeah, Damon, he might be Matt Smith. I think this is the thing of I've, the casting of Matt Smith as Damon, I think, is great because yeah. it's Matt Smith. We all want to feel warm <laughs> towards Matt Smith. And so when he's on screen doing like sassy you know, sarcastic, like, slightly cool stuff, we sort of, like, we warm to him and we feel for him, and then every so often the show has to, like, throw us back down to earth and go, no, 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 you're bad for assuming about this character. <laughs> He's <Yeah>. a horrible person. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of liked that being put right into thing. And on the case of Royce as well, well, this will come up a bit later as well, but this episode carries on the tradition of this whole first half of this season of like eventually there are things going to happen <laughs> and there's going to be lots of lots of different characters in lots of different places and we're seeing what i think are the seeds of things so like the the royces turn up well that, they seem a bit random oh one of them turns up later and you're kind of seeing battle lines almost being drawn in the sand between different interests and houses and stuff mm. i think that's one of my favourite parts of this episode, and it starts right at the beginning with that, yeah, inciting mm. incident. Yeah, just on what you said there, just about 
this episode gradually beginning to draw the battle lines. This is also like the first episode we've had so far where I've been able to structure our episode like I used to for Game of Thrones, where it was, you know, there's a bit in the Vale, there's a bit in Driftmark, there's a bit in King's yeah. Landing. It's like the map has suddenly yeah, got yeah. much bigger uh, over the past few weeks, and that's always quite nice. Um, as for the scene in the Vale... Um, it's a little odd tonally, I think. Um, I think we're kind of working up to the fact that Matt Smith is really going to... I mean, he did it in the first episode quite a lot, but he's very hammy, and he enjoys being very hammy. Like, even walking around the Vale in a big cloak with a big hood on it and, like, you know, doing lots of <laughs> yeah, evil things yeah. and not talking to anybody, really, and just making everybody very tense and stuff like that. But, yeah, you know, it's... I think it's the first example of this episode just kind of doing something that needs to be done because we're at the halfway point of the season now and we're about to do a big time jump and so we need to make sure that this, the foundation for this is laid down so that years in the future when we come back to these characters and stuff it's like, oh yes, we'll remember this, people hold grudges, etc, etc. Yeah. It was another bit uh, shot in the Peak District, by the way. Um not hey. quite, uh, it wasn't a Stockport postcode this time, it was a Sheffield postcode because oh. it was over near Castleton. <laughs> but never mind, Castleton's a lovely place if anybody wants to go and see where this uh, scene was filmed. If you head to Castleton and then there's like a nearby valley, which is uh, which is called Cave Dale, and it's like around Peveril Castle and uh, Peak Cavern and things like that. That's sort of where, where that was all filmed. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful location. Good to be back at the Vale. The last time we saw Runestone uh, was in the first episode of season five of Game of Thrones, where um, Sansa, Dark Sansa, as she is at that point, um, with <laughs> Littlefinger, they tore the Vale, and Robin is uh, attempting to spar with wooden swords with another boy, and he's oh, not doing yeah. very of well. Course. Um, but, of yeah. course. So, yeah, good to be back there. We may return. Who knows? Rhaenyra is my heir. Upon my death, my throne and my titles will pass to her. She and Selena's firstborn child, regardless of gender, will inherit the Iron Throne from her. Can I presume that, in keeping with Westerosi tradition, their children would take their father's name? That they would be born Valarians? Surely, Lord Corlys. You are not proposing the Targaryen dynasty end with my daughter simply because she is a woman. I only seek clarity, Your Grace. At Driftmark, a royal party arrives to arrange the marriage of Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen to Laenor Valarian. King Viserys tries to hide his illness as much as possible, but is sick on the way to Driftmark and develops a cough. Viserys and Corlys reach a compromise, and Rhaenyra and Laenor appear to be happy enough with the arrangement as well. However, Rhaenyra is aware of Laenor's, shall we say, sexual preference, and the pair only agree to marry for political reasons. Laenor is in a secret relationship with Joffrey Lonmouth, a knight in service to House Valarian. Princess Rhaenys tells Corlys that she worries about the danger they have placed Laenor into, given that Rhaenyra's succession will likely be challenged by Aegon when he comes of age. 
On the way back to King's Landing, Sir Criston Cole offers Rhaenyra the chance to marry him instead and run away to Essos. Rhaenyra says that she must marry Laenor out of duty, but says their affair can continue. It's an offer that Sir Criston rejects. Um, so, Driftmark, a new place, a new location we see from the outside. It was there at the end of the second episode, but it was only indoors while Damon, while Damon and Corlys were chatting about Joining, uh, joining. Do you remember the crab feeder? Do you remember him? He, he yeah. <laughs> Great bunch of lads. Yeah. Um. So, Lizzie, Driftmark. How do we feel? Yeah. Uh, well, where do you want to start? Uh, just with um, the, I guess the the boat journey there. Viserys trying to hide the fact that he's not well, and when he arrives and all that. Well, it's funny. I didn't realise at first that he was actually sick until he started coughing actually at Driftmark. I thought the sickness was more due to just general C- seasickness, yeah, seasickness, right? Yeah. But yeah, I think it's kind of um, well, it's, it's obviously a worrying sign and I don't, well, as we know, it doesn't get much better throughout the episode and it's very clear that this is a man who's maybe not long for the world or is maybe a bit too long for the world. Mm. Um, I did have a note about um, Rhaenys and Corlys, actually. Yeah. It's like, because um, Rhaenys suggests that um, that Lainor might be in danger and or that they might be putting him in danger, but I don't think she expected that danger to appear as soon as it does in this episode. In fact... Is Lainor not already in danger if Corlys is clearly so in denial about Lainor's sexuality? He kind of brushes it off as a phase, and mm-hmm. I don't think that's really the most sensible thing to do, but it's just, it's, I think it's clear at this point that Corlys is just so obsessed with, you know, lineage and being in the royal line and, and this kind of accession to the throne that. He's either is he choosing to ignore it, or is there something deeper going on here? I would say that he's kind of choosing to ignore it, where it's just sort of like, oh, you know, I guess like some parents can be, where it's like, oh no, he'll um, he'll just go out of it, he'll just go out of it, like it'll be fine. But I think Rainis is kind of worried that if Lenor is married to Rhaenyra and then Aegon decides to push his claim, it's just like. Well, if war breaks out, then Lenor becomes a target for yeah, um, Aegon and you know the that side, if you will. Um, I feel like um, v- Viserys getting sicker and sicker and stuff in this episode. The way that they portray it, it's kind of like a double-edged sword for me because I think. It vindicates the way that Considine has played Viserys from day one. Like, he's always had this element of sickly tragedy to him. But I think it kind of does that thing that all TV shows do, where it's like, if a character coughs more than once in a scene, they're not, you know, they're they're not well. They're not doing very well. It's like, it's just like, if a character coughs more than once, it's like, or... He's ill. It's kind of like shorthand for explaining everything. But my my favourite moment of trying to communicate Viserys' illness was when Rhaenys grabbed hold of his arm and he winced and he was like, ah, yeah. like that. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. To, and then she asks him, like, are you well? And he goes, very. And then there's that little look between them um, <laughs> where there's like a little bit of a silent understanding. I feel like that's my favourite thing about the conversation in general, which is that I think all of them know that all of them are kind of bullshitting in this kind of stuffy, courtly way. But they're just saying what they need to say in order for the conversation to progress. There's this moment yeah, for yeah. Ceres... Like it, it just it you know there's a huge elephant gets dropped in the room when Corlys mentions that Rhea Royce has been killed, and Viserys and Lionel look at each other like fucking hell he's killed her hasn't he <laughs> like but then he, <laughs> yep. he just, but he just sort of goes oh yes a very sad um she was a a wonderful wife to to my brother and she would be sorely missed and like Corlys and Rainey's and everybody's looking at each other like we all know what Damon's done but we can't say it we're not allowed to speak it into the world <laughs> because we must get yeah. on with the matter at hand and. Yeah, that's a, a really, really good way of uh, of going about that stuff. Um, Jay, how how are we on Driftmark? Well, first of all, I call the coughing thing Tiny Tim Syndrome. Um, <laughs> because whenever you watch any adaptation of A Christmas Carol, there's always got to be a scene where Tiny Tim has a really over-the-top <laughs> coughing fit, just so you know. <laughs> He's a child that might die and Scrooge is bad. Um, but yeah, I think... I, the scenes later on where we're seeing like the extent of how much he's kind of disintegrating are more mm. I think they do a better job of setting that out than just kind of having him cough. As you said, the the flinch when he grabs uh, when people touch his arm is like a really good way of showing that. I think later on in the wedding scene he claps his hands, which I was a bit I was slightly disappointed by. I kind of turned to my girlfriend and was like, how's he clapping his hands? He should be, that should be agony for him. Yeah. <laughs> like, his, hand, his hands on fire. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love Rhaenys. Like, she's not had, like, that much screen time so far in this show. But I just, the way yeah. she's played, just, she comes with such a sense of history and such a sense of, um, like, baggage. Like, so much historical baggage behind her. Um, like, you get the sense of her character immediately. She's so well played. Um, and yeah, the history of the two of the two of them as uh, as they're cousins, right? They are cousins. Mm. Yeah. Um, I also quite liked the yeah the proper introduction of Lenor, who was kind of I thought he was going to get a bit more of an introduction earlier. Obviously, we had the whole dragon incident a few episodes ago, but you don't really know anything yeah. about him at that point um, no. because at that point he's just changed actor, and it's quite it's quite you know you go from him being a very small kid at the tourney to suddenly being an adult um but yeah i think they introduced that really well again it's it's all just adding more and more character and more and more stakes to it so that when you know if this situation starts to fall apart you've got all these different angles to go from um i liked the kind of old-timey um you know, like back in the past, euphemistic way that they discuss like him being gay. Like they're obviously not going to use words like gay, so instead they discuss it with a food metaphor, which felt like quite appropriate for something that's supposed to be like in the past. Yeah, <laughs> they kind of they know exactly what they're talking about. They're just kind of <laughs> dancing around it slightly. Um, yes, yeah, so I enjoyed all that stuff, and as you said, Rob, with the whole structure thing, it is. It has just been nice to get out of King's Landing for a few scenes. It feels like, I don't know, being in that, on that set, I almost felt like I could feel the sea just outside. <laughs> like, it felt like a completely different setting. Yeah, it's a gorgeous uh, yeah. location. Oh, yeah, they're both gorgeous scenes with Lenor and Driftmark. Mm. Like, both, you know, um, 
Rhaenyra enjoys long walks on the beach and yeah. that kind of and Lainor and Joffrey romping in the fens and spinnies. It's they're both really beautiful shots and like this show is not one for beauty. Well, yeah. it's kind of the King's Landing ugliness is kind of yeah, totally. swept away by this gorgeous coast. Mm. I think the the shot of the royal carriage going over that pathway that kind of cuts through the water that is St Michael's Mount in Cornwall oh, yeah, and I'm yeah. not 100% sure if the beach shots of Rhaenyra and Lainor were also done around Cornwall I, I know that they were pictured filming but I forget where because there's some beach stuff that was done around Cornwall like I think um, some of the crab feeder stuff was done around Cornwall um, there is a scene that we see in the promo trailer that's nearly a year old now, unbelievably, um, of Damon and the older Rhaenyra on a beach mm-hmm. uh, at dusk. Uh, I think all that stuff was done around Cornwall, so I wouldn't be surprised um, if this was too. Um, the thing about Rhaenys and Corlys' conversation is the fact that like they're having this disagreement, sort of, about a few things, but they're such a a believable couple. I think if I was going to criticise this show for anything, it's that so far the couples that we've seen, it was that there was a heavy emphasis on it in the first episode, but there hasn't really been since, which is like couples together in quite vulnerable and intimate settings. Like I'm thinking of in the first episode, you had. Uh, Viserys and Emma while she was in the bath Mm. and Mm -hmm. little things like that you know like homely things like in bed you know in the bath that sort of thing and Corlys and Rhaenys the way they've managed to get around it in this scene is that they're constantly holding each other they never let go of each other so even while they're disagreeing it's always with affection a light touch here a light touch there and it's I don't know who's idea that was or where that's come from but it was a lovely little touch that I noticed that and it, it accents parts of the scene really nicely too because when Rainis is trying to make the point to call this that Lainor's in might be in danger because knives will come out etc etc she kind of places both of his hands on his chest like as if to sort of yeah. make the point the hammer home the emphasis um, and yeah I think that I don't know if you want to talk about the boat scene on the way back with Corliss and Rhaenyra. Yeah, it's uh, again we uh, with the the thing at the beginning with Rhea Royce. It's a okay. This is the real story of what happened because the reason Sir Kristen Cole kind of uh, and it's kind of a thread that weaves its way through the whole episode is we see a little bit. We'll get we'll get to Alison later, but you're seeing kind of Alison. <laughs> needing to gather allies <laughs> and you're seeing Rhaenyra kind of lose a few and it, this scene again is okay this is the real story so Kristen Cole's reason for kind of going off with Alicent was always kind of shrouded in mystery he seemed to be fully on Rhaenyra's side and then somehow something happened and different characters in the book have different theories um, I think if you're if you were as a viewer if ever you were worried that this show was going to kind of um, be a bit too ambiguous and not really have good guys and bad guys. I feel like this scene wouldn't do you any favours because I think they do, from what I 
liked as a, and thought was a good job of kind of making them both have like good and bad things about them <laughs> like mm. Rhaenyra sure Rhaenyra's kind of being a little bit arrogant and being like well I just want to you know you know have whoever I want and have my you know fine arranged marriage and just do whatever on the side and sure so Kristen can take offense to that but then he's being like really ultra intense and clingy about like mm, come and run away with me yeah. to another continent and leave all your legacy behind um I feel like if you were worried if you really really wanted someone to root for scenes like this wouldn't help but if you're into the ambiguity, I think it was quite good to kind of watch those two characters butt heads and kind of look at the screen and go, oh, for God's sake, why are you doing this to each other? Like, you don't need to be this obtuse. You can just be chill and be cool, but they can't be because emotions and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Liz, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I was just about to say that I really struggled with Kristen in this episode. Mm-hmm. He just come, he comes off as a bit... Well, like, yes, very passionate and hot-headed, but also kind of stupid at points. Yeah. And, like, almost too much of a, like, Prince Charming for his own good. Because just this assumption that you can just leave and it can be perfect and it can be a life of wine and rope. Like, no, that doesn't happen because she's, like, in line for the fucking throne. Yeah. What? what like, what? Where are you going to go that you're not recognised? Where are you going to... Like, what could you possibly do outside of King's Landing? Because you, you're going to be instantly recognised. You're not going to be able to make a life for yourself. And also, like, I think, you know, this is obviously later on, but he he just sort of gives himself up to Alison about what actually happened when she never actually says, you know, I've heard that you were sleeping with Rhaenyra. It's, she's kind of skirting around it and saying we've heard of some like unpleasantries involving Rhaenyra and you know Captain Dipshit here just <laughs> instantly fesses up like dude just you know have your wits about yourself like play the long game I think this rush to like intense passion does him no favours in this episode but I guess that's the point Hmm. I had a little. I'll talk about it a little bit more, but I've had a little trouble tracking Sir Kristen in this episode emotionally, um, which I think is probably where it starts to fall down a little bit because his emotions are the crux point of so many scenes in this episode, and I'm not 100% yeah. sure that I found all of it completely believable that he would move yeah. from one step to the next. Um, it felt like it was going A, C, E, G, you know, <laughs> if it like kind of counting through yeah. the alphabet. But yeah, we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, the, the scene on the boat is kind of like the first example of, uh, of that. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more when we get back to King's Landing. I have neither fought nor conquered, nor suffered any great defeat. Some might call that good fortune. It hardly makes a good song, does it? To be sung at feasts in a hundred years. Five hundred. You have carried King Jaehaerys' legacy and kept the realm strong. Is it not better to live in peace than to have songs sung after you are dead? Perhaps. 
There is a part of me wishes I'd been tested. I often think that in the Crucible, I may have been forged a different man. In King's Landing, Otto Hightower leaves the capital after being fired as Hand of the King. He tells Alicent that Aegon must come to power or else Westeros will fall into civil war. Soon afterwards, Alicent bumps into Laris Strong in the Godswood. Laris informs Alicent that Rhaenyra was given moon tea by Grand Maester Melos. Suspicious of Rhaenyra, Alicent summons Sir Criston Cole as she questions him about Rhaenyra's night with Daemon. Sir Criston misunderstands and confesses to sleeping with Rhaenyra. Alicent thanks Sir Criston for his honesty but does not tell anybody about his confession. When King Viserys arrives back from Driftmark, he collapses. He's taken upstairs to his chambers where he asks the new hand of the king, Lionel Strong, what kind of king he will be remembered as. Um, so, we got the scene with Larry Strong and Alicent in the Godswood just after Otto uh, leaves King's Landing. I don't know if either of you have got anything to say about Otto uh, leaving uh, the capital for the... Uh, well, for the time being, he may come back, he may not. Um, I do like the scene with Otto saying goodbye to Alicent, but it's the first of a couple of times in this episode where it feels like they lean a little bit heavy on the side of exposition yeah like it's Otto explaining in no uncertain terms what's still to come in the show one way or another and you can maybe claim that Otto feels the need to spell out the situation to Alison but she's just as close to the king as he was yeah wouldn't she also maybe have some inkling of what's going on Mm. Or does she just kind of need that that jolt to say, look, what you think is right is actually right, and now is the time to take action? Yeah, I think it's that. I think I think it's a case of him. He he lays it all out in front of her, and it okay it gives her that shock because then for me that you know the you get that shot of it panning away from her. That for me is Alison's lost like her lifeline. <laughs> her lifeline was her dad. And yeah, that leads yeah. directly into when she talks to Lara Strong in the Godswood because it's she's now gaining information about certain things which are gonna lead her to see Chris and Cole. And when you know, when you recap the the, the 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 bullet points of what happens and you say, you know, she doesn't you know, she says you won't tell anything about his confession. I think she won't tell anyone about Sir Kristen Cole's confession because she realizes he's an ally, he's an ally now. If I keep his secret I have someone who can kind of replace my dad in terms of, yeah. you know, keeping me safe and kind of being a, a staunch ally. So I kind of liked, yeah, that for me, regardless of what anyone's feelings about Otto are himself. I know some people feel sorry for him. Some people don't. For me, that scene is all about Alison being kind of cast adrift and the rest of the episode is what's she going to do to try and pick herself up again? Where is she going to end up landing? Yeah, the last high tower yeah, in the capital kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because I mean, I'm I'm glad that you kind of read the uh, the scene between Alison and Kristen the same way that I did, which is that you know, Alison is given some information that she didn't expect, and she kind of learns from her dad a little bit to just kind of absorb it, don't react to it, just just keep it, let yeah. it grow, let it turn yeah. into something else, yeah. and I think she gets that warning from Laris beforehand because he even says, doesn't he? Um, you don't have many allies, and she's like, "I'm the queen. I have loads of allies." But I think, you know, she personally, she knows that she doesn't have many allies, and it's just all she really has is 
Larry Strong, who really creeps me out. Um, proper, like, a lot of people have been comparing him to Randall from Recess, which I uh, definitely <laughs> understand. Ooh, yeah, I um, see that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I understand that. Because um, I think he, he does a very good job of using people's perceptions of him in order to disarm them and gain trust. Obviously, people will look at him and his condition and think, well, this guy isn't going to cause me any danger and this guy isn't going to harm me or anything like that. And so he kind of plays up to it. And so he he allows himself to get in on people's good sides and then he can start to feed them things and he can say things like, well, I've never really been welcome to talk, so I'm a good listener. And little things like that. And then I think Alison just has that ringing in her ears when Sir Kristen comes up and says what he says and then instead of saying well this is clearly awful we need to have you gelded or something like that mm. it's just okay thank you for your honesty and then just kind of keeping it you know keeping it calm it's like ah he can do a favor for me later just remember that i forgave you <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it yeah. was the uh, the friends thing isn't it with chandler where um <laughs> where Chandler's um I think it's the episode where Ross goes out briefly in like season four, it goes out briefly with Janice, Chandler's ex girlfriend, while oh, yeah. Chandler and Monica are having their secret little affair at the same time. And so Ross comes to Chandler like, Hey, I'm really sorry I went out with Janice and by this point Chandler's way moved on from Janice and so Chandler pretends to be mad at him and then says <laughs> But I forgave you, and I want you to know that I forgave you, and I, I want you to remember that I also gave you twenty seven dollars. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that obviously, if Ross ever finds out that um, Chandler and Monica are together, that Ross will remember that he gave him twenty seven dollars, and it's kind of like that. We're in the future, maybe at some point, where if Alison ever does anything or like you know upsets a Christian, she's like, I want you to remember that I kept your secret, and also saved you from like committing suicide at the end of the episode and uh yeah it's but this is one of those scenes where i'm just sort of like it's it does the thing that tv shows do sometimes and i think it's fine where clearly two characters are speaking about two very different but very similar situations and neither of them mention the nouns yeah. in the yeah. in the situation yes. game. <laughs> neither of them I, I, I don't know what you would call it but yeah. Oh, it's like it's almost like a fast thing, isn't it? And yeah. like Frasier used to do it a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And like Faulty Towers and the the dead guests, that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, you're all saying he instead of saying the actual name. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and it just it I, it's fine if TV shows do that because they've got to create some drama. But yeah, I thought that was uh, that did kind of stand out to me a little bit. It's pretty funny. Um, but. I guess the the thing that it kind of leaves off on uh, this part of the episode before the wedding um, is Viserys. Um, Not in a great way. Does anybody have... uh, Lizzie, how do you feel about A, him fainting and then his conversation with Lionel afterwards? Because I think that might be my favourite bit of the episode. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's one of my favourite bits as well. I, I don't have any particular notes on it because I think it largely speaks for itself, but... I think it is. It's depressing, obviously, to see him in the state that he's in. But to see a reigning king worried about his legacy and you know worried about what will come when he's dead. But ultimately, we know that when you're dead, it's out of your control. 
and it doesn't matter anyway because you're dead. You have you know you have no <laughs> way to process that information because you are no longer a functioning human being with a living brain. But yeah, I think just like there's one line that really stands out in that conversation. Like um, King Viserys says, "There's a part of me that wishes I'd been tested." I often think that in the crucible, I may have been forged a different man. And to which Lionel replies, many that are tested only wish to have been spared it. And is Viserys not in his own way being tested? Like, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's so far off the mark to, for him to think that he's not, both by, you know, his own family and his illness and everything in his... Well, everything we've seen of him up to this point has just been test after test after test. And yet he's fantasizing about what might have been if, you know, he'd been sort of forged in the crucible. Yeah. It's, it's mad. That's a, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought of that. Because that, in a way, you could almost see it as like, if you take that view and you take all of these events as being his test and he's just not recognizing it. I guess the kind of irony of him talking about it is that it's almost like a dealing with this kind of thing, all of these, you know, petty politics and people with personal, you know, you know, vengeance and dramas and stuff. In a way, that could also that could even be considered a harder test than a war, which you just throw troops at and hope to win. <laughs> he, 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 you know, he wonders whether he did, would have been better if there was a war to fight, and it's like, well, your war is here, trying to hold your house together, and you're failing and you're falling apart. Like, you've got your test. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Mm. Mm. I find it really curious as well that a character based... A character in a TV adaptation of a book that is supposed to be a history book that remembers Viserys quite fondly is asking these questions. Because Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what the show is attempting to do, which is that it's been written quite... Fire and Blood, Viserys comes out of it looking okay i think like one of the more kind of forgettable kings you know he isn't a magor he's not an aegon because he doesn't do any conquering or great achievements and he's not a magor because he doesn't have everybody turn on him by the end you won't find his faces on dollars or on cents yes exactly (laughs) we are the mediocre targaryen kings <laughs> you won't find our names inscripted on rings. <laughs> I don't know. Or dragon wings. Um, yes. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that he's asking about how the histories will remember him when we kind of know how the histories will remember him. And the the nature of Viserys in the show is quite... Like, it's like we're kind of getting into the realities, the actual personality, the the fact that he's kind of literally rotting away and the fact that quite a lot of problems that are happening right now have been caused by his inability to really decide. It was kind of like I was laughing with you guys, I think, um, in the week where I was sort of saying, like, you know, they've taken this character that's described as, what is it, plump but pleasant or something like that in the books. And they've just kind of turned him into like like a rotting Chidi Anagonye from The Good Place. Like... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I... I think it's really interesting that, again, I think this episode really justifies Paddy Considine's performance as Viserys thus far, mm-hmm. which is really nice because um, 
I mean, I don't know if either of you have seen the preview trailers for next week, um, but he, things don't exactly get better for Viserys from here. He doesn't suddenly have a, a nice clean bill of health after a good yeah. few leechings. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see him when he basically just kind of can't stand up anymore, which I think is next week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's kind of showing signs of struggling as well. I think maybe the decision... Uh, that they take at the end of this episode is maybe just to put him in a wheelchair or just have him permanently carried around um, a little bit from now on. Maybe standing up is what's causing him the problem, like his blood pressure just seems to go. Congratulations, Your Grace. You have made a fine match for the princess. Thank you, Lord Jason. I could think of no better man than Selena. <laughs> well, if this is only the welcome feast, I admit I cannot imagine what you might have planned for the wedding. Oh, my daughter is the future queen. I wanted this to be a wedding for the histories. Where is the queen? I had hoped to pay my respects. I understand the queen is still readying herself for the celebrations. This is why men wage war. Because a woman would never be ready for the battle in time. Your presence is always such a pleasure, Lord Jason. Princess, your grace. The various members of House Valarian arrive in King's Landing for Rhaenyra and Laenor's wedding. A royal feast is held in the throne room itself, and delegations from House Lannister, House Hightower, and House Valarian all arrive to greet the betrothed couple. Before the king can begin his speech, Daemon Targaryen suddenly invites himself into the room and takes a seat at the high table. Before the king can finish his speech, Alicent Hightower arrives late, wearing the green colours of House Hightower. The dancing and festivities then begin, and things appear to be progressing as planned. Daemon is confronted by Gerald Royce, who accuses him, quite rightly, of murdering Lady Rhea. However, Daemon talks his way out of the conversation and enters the dance floor, where he flirts with Lady Lena of House Valarian. So that's just the first half of the wedding. Um, this bit of the episode is probably... Uh, well, it contains my least favourite moment, if it's not necessarily my least favourite bit of the episode. Um, Lizzie, how are we feeling about the first half of the wedding? Well, yeah, I mentioned before about how it's like... It's the tension with the Royce family is not obvious until you get to this point. Like even when Gerald Royce comes in the room and they, you know, they extend their, um, you know, their sadness at, at the death and they, they sort of start to say like, if there's anything we could do for your house. And then they're both kind of interrupted and they part. And then after that, Damon comes in straight away. It's like not really pressing the issue. I think that's going to be, a kind of something that maybe comes back like well you know you offered something at the wedding and then it was all kind of forgotten about and well what are you going to do for me now <laughs> yeah I, th I thought the i'm interested as to, as to what your uh negative bit was because i do have a negative bit of this section but um in general I have a slight one but yeah sorry, it's quite on, it is on. quite slight um in general, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a <laughs> we're in this universe. There's a wedding. Everyone kind of takes a deep breath and kind of wonders what's to come. Um, I do again. I mentioned it at the beginning, but again, you know, we're seeing people start to appear, um, and they're very clearly, 
you know, on one side or on another side. You've got the Royce guy, you've got the Lannister guy, who I just love for how much of a complete slime ball he is. Um, I think it's <laughs> Jason Lannister, this guy. There's a couple that we've Yeah, this one's there. Jason. Viserys gives him... Yeah. Sorry, I was just about to say, Viserys gives him one of those classic Targaryen non-smiles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Daenerys in that one meme. Just like, mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so again, it's that thing of battle lines being drawn. And I think it's 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 really, really obvious in this scene. Um, for, I mean, I'll just, I guess I'll just say that for my, for my bit, the bit that I wasn't as much of a fan of was Alicent walks in, she wears she's wearing green and i'm like i'm doing the leo thing of pointing at the screen and i'm like oh my god she's wearing green and then you see the high towers and they're all wearing green and i'm like that's some visual storytelling that and then two characters talk to each other about it and yep. point it out yeah that's my <laughs> least like, favorite oh, bit that was mine well. too yep mine too <laughs> like it's silly but it took me out of it but yeah same like the the, th- the thing that really makes it even funnier as well is that I, I try not to watch the inside the episode things because I always thought that like when they were on for Game of Thrones, it was just like you could tell that Benioff and Weiss have been dragged in to record these over like two days, which is where I think something like Danny kind of forgot comes from because it's like you've been re- sat there recording these for like six hours trying to explain everything that's already been on the screen. And you think, if, mm. I think Benioff and Weiss are the kind of people where it's like we just want what we do to speak for itself. And so, like, they get asked, like, oh, and can you tell me about, you know, Daenerys's thought processes around the time she's Dragonstone? And he's like, well, I don't know, kind of forgot about the Iron Fleet, I guess. And so I try not to watch these too much because, you know, they're often delivered, like, they're all they're often, like, recorded in bulk by people yeah. who are just sort of like, well, listen, everything I wanted to say is on the page, but Miguel Sapochnik, mm. God love him, when he goes, when they're talking about the moment where she walks in with the green dress, he goes... <laughs> He says, um, I really like this bit. Oh, God, it was so subtle. I hope I hope we got it across. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> you had two characters pause the show to tell us the significance of the colour green. And it's just like, I get that it's like, it's a big moment that would have been kind of hard to make sure that everybody understood. And I understand that, you know, I'm a book reader, so I'm like, yep, the colour green's very important going forward, especially for Alison. And so, yep, good. Yep, you've done a good job there. But there's obviously lots of people watching at home who haven't read the books who are just sort of going to be like, why is the dress so important? And like, and so I get why they've done it, but... I think I wouldn't have minded if it was just one of the two lines that they do because they get one of the characters to say, oh, right in the middle of the King's speech, he won't be happy about that. And I'm like, will he be that annoyed? I don't know. It just seems like, oh, well, she was late. But then it's that they follow it up with like, and she's wearing green. And do you know what the colour of the high towers? And it's just like, yeah. don't give me all of this. Just sort of be like, no, just... Uh, it it just it's such an important moment for the story and I think they kind of flubbed it to be honest but um, it's it's not the worst crime or anything like that but it is I was I was sat there thinking like oh god I feel like my intelligence has just been insulted a little bit by it um, but it's a cool moment that kind of like you know it interrupts the speech it's a big you know, introduction to like, yep, the wedding is beginning. And so you get all these pieces on the board and, you know, you, you know, you're beginning, it kind of sets up like a whodunit sort of thing. Like it does for Joffrey's uh, Marjorie's wedding. 
Um, speaking of Marjorie, I just want to give a shout out to Tom and Marjorie's wedding, which was completely fine. Uh, in season five, nobody ever seems to talk about the weddings that do go well in uh, in Westeros. That's true. So there's, That's there's, true. there's one good wedding there, um, but yeah, fair enough. yeah. I, I, I am only joking, by the way. It's a little bit like you know, um, in Peep Show with Nancy, where she's like. Jesus, Jeremy, another bus crash. What about all the buses that made it safely to their destinations today? <laughs> <laughs> and then Mark's like, yes, I suppose the news just should just be a dispassionate list of all of the events of the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that once the wedding kind of gets going, I think the tension is ramped up really nicely. Um, most of the tension in the scene is worked really well through Viserys because... He manages to deliver a really good speech without coughing or falling over or his arm hurting or being sick or something like that. And it's constantly on an eye edge. like, is this going to be the moment where he falls over and bangs his head or yeah. is somebody going to have to yeah. help him or something like that? And yeah, it's there's a good good degree of tension that comes through just for waiting for that speech to end and for everybody to just sort of go, yay! Yes, well done. Uh, yes, very well done there. Um, I also quite like the dancing, the you know, the jumping around and the hey, you know the yeah, it was hey. cool. Na, 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 na. Hey, um, and I also think as well that Viserys three times in this episode gets saddled with what I think was eventually kind of joked around about as like the Catelyn Stark Irony Award or something like that, where, like, she says in season one, um, I've known Lord Walder since I was a girl. He would never harm me. And so whenever a character <laughs> says anything like that in Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon now, it's like, oh! And so yep. Viserys gets two in this uh, in this scene. He gets, um, I wanted this to be a wedding for the histories. And wow. he also gets to announce that there's going to be seven days of tournament and feasting. And so he gets the wedding for the histories, which denies the seven days of the tournament and feasting. So I just wanted to point that out and laugh <laughs> about that one. Um, nice, nice. Yeah, I don't know if either of you have any more to say about Gerald um, Royce getting up and having a conversation with, with Damon, who manages to just sort of come in and disrupt everything again. I feel like he's just... <laughs> constantly flip-flopping between whether he wants to be in king's landing or not <laughs> yeah it's true I, yeah i don't have anything specific about that although i was although i did enjoy it because it is that kind of tension thing of he is just being flippantly dismissive and oh god i hope this guy isn't the kind to just kick <laughs> i hope there isn't a fight on this dance floor whoops um <laughs> but i i think for me it was the you see a couple of shots throughout as the tension goes and as things start to go wrong during the wedding of Viserys' face and for me it's just it's the if you're talking about the first five episodes being like a side A it's being kind of watching Viserys you know physically melt but also his influence and his grip on things start to melt there's a couple of shots of his face where he kind of just seems like he's looking around going this I'm gone like I'm gone like people are there's politics and revenge and fights going on that don't really include me like like is this it like am i gone already um mm. it's happening in front of my face and i can't and we're not there yet but we're about to be when the stuff when the fight starts to happen he doesn't say anything the king there's a fight going on in front of the king and he doesn't like scream and say stop it feels like 
it's showing us that he feels powerless and he is powerless because yeah Mm. yeah i think viserys is a really good way of outside of his speech him kind of observing and not like you say not really being able to control anything is a good way to kind of raise the tension because i think if you ground us in the perspective of a character who has no control over a particular scene then we're going to be sat there at home thinking that we have no real control yeah. over what might be about to happen i just wanted to sort of say as well that this wedding sequence like with all the moving parts stuff like that it must be so hard to construct something like this where oh, gotcha. it's oh absolutely yeah like, you've got like 200 people in a room maybe 300 yep. if you count all the extras you've got to focus on five or six different points of view you've got to watch two or three different characters at once you've got to give them all the perspectives in a way where it all adds together chronologically in a linear fashion and yeah it's really really something it's a, a hell of a really a hell of an achievement to put a scene together like this and like it's really really nicely edited as well because i think we get and it's composed in a really graceful way too because we get different elements like different different ingredients get added to the brew as the as the scene progresses and then by the time the 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 tide starts to turn ever so slightly we're we're well well in tune Sir Joffrey Longford. The Night of Kisses, they call me, though I don't know why. I'm on watch. What's your business? You don't know me, Sir Kristen. No, but we are both deeply invested in this union. If you have something to say, Sir Joffrey, speak it. Sir Lena is quite dear to me. As I know, the princess is to you. That we should swear to each other to guard them and their secrets. Because if those are kept safe, and so are we all. In the next part of the wedding, as Damon and Rhaenyra begin to argue on the dance floor, Joffrey Lonmouth makes his way over to Sir Criston and makes him aware that he knows about Sir Criston's affair with Rhaenyra. A brawl then breaks out, and when the crowd parts, Sir Criston has pummeled Joffrey Lonmouth to death. Sir Kristen walks out into the godswood intending to commit suicide, but Alicent stops him before he can. A devastated Laenor then marries Rhaenyra that later that night, and when the couple are married, King Viserys collapses again. Um, so that kind of closes uh, the episode out. Um, the brawl. Lizzie, how did the brawl come together for you? Um, well, something to note here is that there's been a couple of articles this week, which I'm sure you've seen, Rob, with, you know, those kind of clickbaity headlines like House of the Dragon has a queer problem. Yeah. And I feel like I should maybe speak up as a queer person and say that as much as I'm gutted to lose yet another queer couple so suddenly and so soon in this universe, I don't think it's entirely fair to claim that the show's writers have fallen back on the bury your gay trope mm-hmm. in order to advance the storyline. I think the key takeaway for me was that secret romances are doomed because there are no such thing as secrets in Westeros. Like, I suspect Joffrey and Laenor knew that all too well. And, you know, obviously Rhaenyra is aware of their relationship. But it seems like they still managed to enjoy the time 
they were able to spend together. Like Kristen, however, doesn't seem to have realised this. And like we say, he's, he's spent this whole time being so obsessive and clingy about the idea of being with Rhaenyra. And like the insinuation by Joffrey that Kristen and Rhaenyra could continue their relationship in secret causes him to lash out and, well, kill an innocent man. And not just that, but we've seen time and time again that honour and status and duty and family always come before love in terms of the priorities of the Westeros elite. So, yeah, it's a shame to have to lose the show's only known queer couple so soon, but I highly doubt that this is the last one we'll get to witness. And for what it's worth, I think they executed it well in the short time they had. Um... I guess for the brawl itself, it's only the fourth most brutal death I've seen on TV this week. But yeah, really well done. I like that it kind of sets it up so that you don't actually know what's going on until you see the reveal. Mm. Like, because it could be, you know, it could be anything. It could be, you know, it could have been Rhaenyra having a fight with Damon. It could have been Damon having a fight with... Um, the the Royce guy. Royce. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Sorry, I know he's got a name, but Gerald Royce. Maybe, maybe the family go. of that boar that was killed in episode three have come for come for revenge as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. For you never know. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't really have too much to add regarding um, those clickbaity articles. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think. I think that the point really is that a lot of people in Westeros die grisly, horrible deaths, and some of them yes. happen to be gay. And yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think you know there were a few times in Game of Thrones where I felt like they maybe kind of I don't know if they fumbled it. I think they just kind of ran out of material for certain characters, like Loras Tyrell, where. After he gets arrested, he doesn't really do anything. He just yeah. we see him twice. Yeah, he just kind of rots in prison, right? Yeah, yeah, he rots in prison, gets a star carved in his head, and then gets blown up. Like you know, it's I think they just kind of ran out of material for certain characters, and they were trimming the board. And Loris Tyrell was not one of the characters who was going to be left standing. But I thought, to be honest, the 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 Twitter thread that British GQ created. Mm out of that article there's a tweet in it which about halfway down it just says there's no gay in game of thrones because this is a world of strict heteronormative traditionalism and i sat there and read it for about five minutes over and over again i just thought like fucking hell like you know and i sort of isn't that the point (laughs) because it just feels a bit like yeah you're sort of stating the obvious there like it just i don't understand how like the like, point of the show <laughs> is a criticism. It's like... it's uh, Exactly. I feel like the further... Every time a debate like this comes up, I always think, surely people know that depiction does not equal endorsement. And yet these exactly. debates come up all the time. Yep. And so apparently we still don't get it. Um, but I, yeah, I have less to say about like the actual article itself and more about how British GQ kind of used it to rile a few people up and get a few people mad. Um, the the actual 
the, the brawl itself is good and it's tense. And again, it kind of speaks to what I said before about um, planting us in Viserys's perspective just so we're, we don't have any kind of handle on what's happening until it's all over. But I think the actual payoff, the emotional payoff, I mean, like, physically and visually, it's brutal. I love the, mm. the, the makeup and the work that's been done on Joffrey's face to just kind of have it fold in on itself like that. That's that's really good, but it's the emotion I'm supposed to derive from it that makes me feel like I'm a bit lost, because it's tense and shocking in the moment. But I don't know how much I feel for Lainor when he's bawling his eyes out over it, or the I don't know how much I feel for Joffrey that it's happened to him, and I don't know how angry I'm supposed to be with Sir Kristen because I feel like I've had trouble tracking one step to the next with anything that he does in this episode where it's like we go from him coming up with the idea to run away with Rhaenyra to confessing to his affair with Rhaenyra to offering himself up to be killed to to beating up this guy who says that he knows about his affair with Rhaenyra and it just it feels like it's kind of ironic that the episode with the smallest time jump at the start kind of feels like it's been most hampered by the larger time jumps around it i feel like if this had been split in half like i said at the top and we had more scenes with Lainor, more scenes with Lainor and joffrey mm-hmm. more scenes yes. with sir Kristen, i would be sat there thinking like yeah this is devastating i think the 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 sixth episode and the time jump that's coming looms large over this because they've slightly changed how Joffrey Longmouth is killed in the in the show and I think it's one of the few adaptive changes they've made so far that I think is a weaker decision because I think it also and you know personally I you know I have an imagination so I can imagine that like Joffrey Longmouth is greatly outranked by Sir Kristen. Sir Kristen can just lie his way out of what's happened. But, like, he's just beaten up a knight to House Valarian in the middle of a room. Yeah. And mm. nobody's wondering why this has happened or, like... And, and so, Sir Kristen can just turn around and say, like... Oh well, he was spreading filthy rumors about the queen, and oh, he, he and he tried to attack me because he did. He does get a knife out to defend himself, Joffrey Longmouth, and so, you know, maybe in the annals of history, it can be written down that Joffrey Longmouth came at Sir Kristen with a knife, and Sir Kristen had to beat him up in self-defense, yeah. or something like that. But and so that's fine. Like you know, I can imagine that happening. It happened off camera. I don't care. But the the way that it happens in the books just feels tidier to me, which is that Sir Kristen goes after Joffrey Longmouth during a jousting match, but we've already had a jousting match, so I understand why the show didn't want to repeat itself where we have another jousting match where Sir Kristen wins and that sort of thing, and so you do it with, you combine the wedding set piece in order to bring all of these plot threads together, you you know, you light a match and then boom, something happens and so i can see why that works for a lot of people because it a lot of plot threads collapse in on themselves in this scene and it sets it up really well so that the older actors can take over everything's set and now we can just kind of flip the record over to side b for for next week but i do think that some of the emotional impact is lost the tension and the shock works but how much i take away from it 
emotionally is diminishing with time. I, I agree. But yeah. I will say that it does kind of contradict something that I said last week, which is I think this is the first moment of the show. It's the first moment moment where, like, you would want to watch somebody react who doesn't know what's about to happen. Like... You think? Maybe, but, Yeah, like, I think your point about them only really having been properly introduced in this episode kind of makes that... Yeah, like, if they'd have been introduced in episode one or episode two, if you'd have seen them as kids or something like that, Jesus, like, that would have maybe had the, the bigger impact, but I think that's probably a good point that, yeah, the impact is lessened by the fact that we've only really just gotten any sense of them yeah Mm. yeah i agree yeah um i actually had a stronger reaction to viserys collapsing at the wedding and like watching them have to get married with all the rotting food around them and like all the the blood still warm on the floor like yeah yeah and rats going around Mm. yeah and I guess Alison stopping Sir Kristen from committing suicide, but again, it's another one of those things where it's like, how did we get to here? Like, I, I know they have strange honor codes in Westeros, and like he was like, Fine. you know, I think you know people who are soldiers, they kind of just in Westeros, they kind of just prepare to die at some point. You know, they know they're not going to live very yeah. long, so they make themselves as big and strong as possible in order to avoid that happening. But yeah, the emotional weight of the suicide attempt if you will, um, it's more... I feel like we're going to get stronger... I feel like it's going to resonate throughout the rest of the show rather than in the scene itself because it's Alison who stops him, but that's a matter for later. Yeah, I think that's my main... Th- you know, you mentioned, like, nobody says anything. I feel like that's my main takeaway, is that I feel like with something so shocking and so out of the blue, I feel like he sh- you sh- could have had him make his excuse there and then <laughs> and I would have felt a little bit easy about it rather than kind of sat in there going is this something no one gonna no no one you're just gonna go and yeah he's, he's a king's guard but I don't think that gives you license to just go and Wail beat, a, beat a man to death on the floor <laughs> um so yeah it was kind of a strange strange way to end it but yeah I think mm. that in terms of all the characters and stuff I think the uh yeah they're in the they're in the right places and they've justified how they got there mm. mostly yeah, I think so. I, th- I will say that this sequence is great, um, you know, apart from a couple of bits that I wasn't that 100% keen on. But, like, I'd, I'd mentioned on Twitter earlier really this week um, that, like, you know, nobody sees how the fight starts. You know, Kristen yeah. greatly outranks Joffrey, so it's plausible that he could lie and Alicent could cover for him, like, she's the queen. So, yeah, you know, there's something there. Um, like,. It, it's not like a definitive answer to what actually happened, but I think the show did just about enough work to establish that that could happen. Like, I don't think it's the cleanest way to do it for the show, but I understand why they would have thought that it was the most emotionally effective. And to be honest, for people who've not read the the book and stuff like that, and like who were just kind of casually, you know, watching the show, um, you know, like... I imagine that the majority of the people who watch House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones and stuff like that, they're not really interested too much about the ins and outs of the creation process and stuff like that. You know, they're just kind of Mm -hmm. happy to take it in. And I think if you're someone who's just kind of happy to sit and take it in, this will really go over really well. Yeah. Because it's a really well-constructed and well-edited and really well-acted sequence as well. 
And I love the sound editing when Sir Kristen is pummeling Joffrey's head in. Because normally when you get a character punching someone in the face, you they simulate the sound of knuckles meeting skull. Yeah quite well but with this it starts to sound really sloppy really early and you're like oh my god what has he done to him and then you find out that there is no knuckle meeting skull because the skull is gone (laughs) so uh yeah great sound editing on that one that was uh yeah big fan of that yeah right then lizzie i want your line of the episode please um, my line of the episode, I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again, is Lord Lionel Strong, who says, many that are tested only wish to have been spared it. Hmm. Yeah. Sage wisdom. Um, yeah. Who is your loser this week? My loser of the week is Sir Kristen Cole. Yeah. Yeah. Proper, like, a lot of dickhead moves in this episode, to be honest. And yeah. just kill someone. <laughs> if, you, if you could have just reined yourself in would have been fine but no it had to be this way <laughs> who's your winner my winner of the week is Alison Tower. okay that green dress won you over <laughs> yeah I feel like she really came into her own this week and I'm sure this is not the last time I'll be saying that no I don't imagine it is either because next week's episode uh, is probably going to be named uh, the princess and the queen so uh... I wonder who that's going to be about. I wonder if it's going to be about a princess and a queen. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know, my gut says maybe. Yeah. yeah. All right, then. Thanks very much for listening this week, everyone. Uh, we'll be back in a week's time. See you then. See ya. Bye-bye.